0: Welcome again to exploring the Scriptures' presentation on Christians and the Gospel, with Dr. Ron Bartholomew. Here now
1: is Dr. Bartholomew. Hi, folks. We're doing the we continue with Christian history today. I'm going to try really hard to talk so you can understand me. That's my goal. Let's see how it goes. Any marks at Go. Separate from ecclesiastical officers was another group who provided this educational and social services and encouraged certain ascetic and personal expressions of Christian piety.
0: These were the orders of monks and nuns whose lives were regulated by their respective orders and who took upon themselves formal vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. Medieval monasticism had evolved through a long history beginning in the 3rd century with early hermits like St. Anthony, who took literally Christ's injunction to the rich young man to go and sell that thou hast and give to the poor, Matthew chapter 19, verse 21. Later monks lived communally in monasteries under strict rules, attempting to live in the world but not be of it. While the conversion of kings and rulers was often responsible for the conversion of the entire populace residing within their political entities it was the monks and nuns who were responsible for the actual teaching and ministering required to truly convert the people the masses
1: so this is where you can really see the three levels of the church you've got the the people ministered to by the monks and nuns you got the bishops and the archbishops and then you've got the pope at the top and uh they'd had very little interaction with each other
0: Whether they were women or men, monastics were the most common agents of evangelization among the peoples of the West in the 7th through the 10th centuries. Monasteries were mission stations that brought the church close to people's lives. Monastery chapels were often the place people went to worship and received the sacraments. Monks and nuns provided education along with Christian teaching to the people of the countryside, Modeling Christian mortal life moral life for the rest of the community As holy people they were in effect called upon to replace traditional religions and handle the day-to-day problems in people's lives
1: So we see here especially from the 7th to the 10th century the powerful influence the monks and nuns had on the people They were good people. They were righteous people and they led people to Christ
0: monastic history
2: movement can actually be found back in ancient judaism even before jesus the pharisees who we all know from the gospels are very much in many ways very much like the religious orders in the catholic church and we had the essenes who had their community at the dead sea who left us the dead sea scrolls they were a very monastic character and these groups are seeking god in a certain way uh, but the Christian monastic movement, I'd say, we also see roots for that in the scriptures, where Christians are supposed to fast and seek God and seek peace and pray. Pray always, St. Paul says and Jesus says, and that's what monks are supposed to do, too. But the the formal monastic movement in Christianity really took off in the 4th century. There was, at that time, an openness to Christianity then in the Roman Empire, which had previously been an illegal religion and suffered persecutions. But it eventually became a socially right thing to do. Everybody's becoming Christian and so the the moral life of Christians became lax and the purists among them, the diehards, wanted something more rigorous. So the monastic life where you go out into the desert and live simply and really seek purity became a strong movement particularly in egypt and that's egypt became the place of repute for the strongest monks and that's where john Cassian relearned monasticism and brought it to the west and saint benedict then refers to john Cassian's institutes and conferences in his rule And, of course, St. Benedict's rule became predominant in the West during the Middle Ages, and has been so ever since.
3: So the origins of monasticism are there. Uh, It's too complex to go into the whole thing, but St. Benedict uh, is, uh, when he comes along, we think of him as the origin of monasticism, but monasticism has been several centuries in the making. When he comes along and draws from many traditions and forms a way of life, for monks uh, to live together, uh, and uh, he, he represents a sort of, well, he didn't intend to do this, I don't think, but it turns out to be a sort of ingenious synthesis of the previous centuries, and uh, as such then it becomes, uh, for subsequent centuries in, uh, in Western Europe, it becomes the premier form of monasticism, just because he... He got so much uh, wisdom in his uh, rule, which reaches back to those early centuries of monasticism, but but focused it for the new situation in which uh, he found himself in his day. In the centuries following St. Benedict, and especially uh, from the ninth century on, Benedictine monasteries began to be established throughout Europe, and were, as I said earlier, were considered a blessing virtually everywhere they showed up
1: so monasticism wasn't really a curse it was a blessing um what happened can you see what happened okay i've got the the vega the piece there the piece we're on and the slides there um i don't know what happened so let's start over again i guess silly thing um where is Sir Morgan? Okay. Healing here. says recording. over Okay.
0: Well, it is important to our faith, faith claim, to point out inconsistencies, impurities, and, and innovations during the medieval Catholic Church. What about it? What about its great contributions that also helped aid in the Restoration? Missionary outreach. The Catholic faithful took the message of Jesus and his words to the world. The Historian Williston Walker wrote that from Francis of Assisi on, missionary outreach was primarily the endeavor of the monastic orders.
1: They took the gospel to hundreds of thousands of people. If it wasn't for them, there wouldn't have been so many Christians and so we'll grateful for them for that.
0: The Council of Trent said nothing in its official statements about the world mission of the renewed Catholic Church, but this mission became one of the most distinctive features of Southern European Catholicism, a project of taking Christianity to every continent, which made Roman Catholicism Western Christianity's largest grouping and the Spanish and Portuguese languages the chief modern rivals to English as the mode of Western communication. It is worth observing that there was little that Rome could do about mission. The papacy had signed away control of this Catholic activity to the Jesuit and the mendicant friar orders. The distinctive Christianity of Spain and Portugal in the Iberian Peninsula, which during the 15th century had destroyed the last non-Christian societies in Western Europe simultaneously began to extend Western Christendom beyond its historic frontiers across the sea. The Jesuits rapidly began following up their initial advantage in the Portuguese territories in Africa, Asia, and Brazil. Their successes were in sharp contrast to Christian defeats and contraction in the East. Christian mission preceded back by military force, first in Central America, including modern-day Mexico, which remained the flagship Spanish territory, and was therefore styled New Spain and later in South America. In large part because of the friar's scruples, there was no systematic intention to obliterate pre-Christian structures in government and society a number of peoples allied with the Spaniards, against their neighbors, or came to a deal with the newcomers and preserve autonomous forms of government. Much destruction resulted not from the Spanish arms, but from a much more devastating weapon, which Westerners did not even realize they possessed, the diseases they were carrying. No major Native American kingdom succumbed to the Spaniards before disease took hold, but once it had, the effect was crippling, and maybe half the population of the Americas died in the first wave of epidemics. That in itself was a powerful argument to bewildered and terrified people, that their gods were useless, and that the god of the conquerors had won. It has been estimated that by 1550, around 10 million people have been baptized as Christians in the Americas.
1: This is a very interesting way to do missionary work. Scare the people to death with your diseases and they'll join the church. So, but that's what happened. And it happened mainly in the West, in Central and South America.
0: Another informed and sobering estimate is that by 1800, indigenous populations in the Western Hemisphere were a tenth of what they had been three centuries ago, before.
1: Because of disease.
0: Whereas in Iberian America, Christianity could rely on official backing from colonial governments, subject to the myriad other concerns of colonial administrators. This was not so in Asia or Africa, nor did Europeans have disease on their side to weaken the great Asian empires they enca- that they encountered thanks to the centuries of continuous contact between Asia and Europe.
1: So without that disease factor, the, the admission was much more difficult in Africa and Asia than it was in Europe and it was in the Americas. So once outside these uncomfortable pockets
0: of European rule, Catholicism in Asia had to make its way on its merits, often where earlier Eastern Christian missions had already known success followed by gradual decline and contraction. Presenting the Christian message without military backing posed considerable problems for a missionary priest. Nearly always a Jesuit or a friar, he faced Asian peoples with age-old and subtle cultures, full of self-confidence and likely to be profoundly skeptical that Westerners
1: could teach them anything of value. So as you can see, missionary work was very difficult in Asia, although it was very easy in Central and South America. And that's where I the majority of Christians today.
0: At the peak of the Chinese mission success, at the end of the 17th century, it was, serving, it was serving perhaps around a quarter of a million people, an extraordinary achievement, even though still a tiny proportion of the whole population. Christian work in Japan was the most extreme story, as the most spectacular success of any mission launched from Portuguese bases in Asia or Africa ended in almost total destruction. Only seven years after the first Portuguese visit to Japan, as Jesuits continued to dominate the Japanese mission, they quickly achieved results by the end of the century. There were perhaps as many as 300,000 Christian converts in Japan. Again and again missionary Jesuits and friars proved their heroic commitment to spreading their Christian message throughout the world. The prolonged sufferings and ghastly deaths of Jesuit missionaries at the hands of the hostile First Nations on the borders of the French colonies in Canada in the early 17th century rank high in the history of christian suffering even the hazards of travel were a martyrdom in them in them, in themselves of 376 jesuits who set out for china between 1581 and 1712
1: 127 died at sea so as far as suffering sacrifice etc we don't have anything on these people We have done our own own fair share of suffering and sacrifice, but nothing compared to to the centuries of missionaries who tried to convert the Japanese and the Asians.
0: To the work of these orders, the Christianity of southern, central, and large parts of North America is due. They covered the Philippines. Roman Catholic religious orders also carried the gospel message to major countries of Asia, such as Japan, China, and India. They were to be found as well in in Africa of the major continents of the world. Only Australia was untouched by missionaries who were members of monastic or religious orders from the years 1200 to 600 A.D. It is estimated that Catholic missionaries were responsible for the conversion of 29,290,565
1: souls during this time. That is amazing they really did a good job
0: the education health care and welfare services provided to their vast populations through the self-selected monks and nuns these consecrated volunteers saved thousands millions of lives and educated the masses as a free will offering to the Lord Jesus Christ the Catholic Church must be what the Lord was at least partially referring to in the Joseph Smith translation of Revelation chapter 12, verse 5, as one of the several entities that kept Christianity alive during the medieval period.
1: As members of the Church, we love to talk about how bad the Catholics are. But hopefully I've shown you today just a little bit some of the heroic uh, of the holy church during this time period. They kept the church alive. There's no twist about it. President John Tater said of this time period,
0: there were men and women in those dark ages who could commune with God and who by the power of faith could draw aside the curtain of eternity and gaze upon the invisible world, have the ministering of angels and unfold the future destinies of the world. If those were dark ages, I pray God to give me a little darkness and deliver me from the light and intelligence that prevail in our day.
1: (laughs) Yeah, John Taylor really appreciated the the missionaries to China, etc. And I do too. They they really did a great job.
0: Renaissance is a term used in many ways, each with its own justification and purpose. Now,
1: I should warn you, we're we're really going to change... Situations here we're going to change our our direction of talking etc. We're going to go from talking about the missionary work in the in the world to the renaissance And I'm going to try to explain the renaissance to the best way I know that I know how
0: In the broadest sense it is a period of history covering roughly the two centuries from about 1350 to 1550 a time displaying a remarkable spirit of self-discovery discovery and fulfillment a recognition of human worth And a dynamic outpouring of intellectual, artistic, and literary activity. In some ways, it featured a cultural break with the ideas of the Middle Ages, yet in others it was a continuation or culmination of them. This should not be surprising, since all history contains both continuity and change, congruity and contrast. Above all, we should recognize it as a dynamic age, a time when new ideas, institutions, and beliefs were becoming popular while many old patterns of thought and activity continued in force. The word Renaissance means rebirth, applied particularly to the revival of classic thought, literature, art, and style, but as commonly used, it implies much more than that. It also refers to the rapid social and economic changes, new ideas, and applications of political and international organization, and the overseas discoveries and expansion of Europe that were taking place in the 15th and 16th centuries.
1: Like Columbus.
0: We will focus more on the devotional, ideological, and moral aspects of the period and what can be called the religious religious renaissance with features that most likely primed and led to the reformation of the 16th century and revealed new insights into human divine relations. It is possible that some of these insights were not only new but perhaps even revelatory, precursory to a latter day when divine communication would again be known.
1: We almost have to look at the Renaissance history because so many wonderful things happened during this time period
0: during the renaissance from about 1350 to 1550 pressures mounted to reform the church and reduce its abuses this movement was rooted in the ideals of humanism that humans their lives and their pursuits were worthwhile in and of themselves and that man was governed and should be governed by his own will and agency to be free and happy
1: now that definition of the of the renaissance might not be the same one that you've heard a lot but humanism which has changed the meaning of the word has changed today that's what humanism meant back then
0: this was very anti augustinian they focused their studies on the humanities the arts and letters the creations of humans versus science per se these ideals ran counter to the monastics and scholastics of the medieval period from which they emerged in conflict, and as some saw it, heresy. No one could have predicted that Augustine would spark a religious revolution. There was a general move among theologians over the next century, whether traditionalist in their scholasticism, humanist or Protestant, to listen afresh to the Bishop of Hippo. The problem was what to take from the breadth of Augustine's discussion of the Christian faith. As the 20th century Princeton historian of theology B.B. Warfield famously observed, the Reformation, inwardly considered, was just the ultimate triumph of Augustine's doctrine of grace over Augustine's doctrine of the Church. Western Christians would have to decide for themselves which aspect of Augustine's thought mattered more, his emphasis on obedience to the Catholic Church, or the discussion of salvation, which lay behind the rebellion by Martin Luther and other theologians in his generation. From one perspective, a century or more of turmoil in the Western Church from 1517 was a debate in the mind of the long-dead Augustine. European-wide yearning for renewing the Church long predated Martin Luther's turbulent public career. At the end of the 15th century, it was easy to believe that God had some new and decisive purpose for His creation. Orthodox Christians and Muslims were convinced that 1492-1493 through would witness the end of the world, and even when that milestone passed without apparent incident, The obvious fact remained that 1500 1500 marked a millennium and a half since the presumed date of Christ's birth. Constant medieval warfare against Islam and the Judaism which it sheltered gave Spanish Catholicism a militant edge and an intensity of devotional practice not found elsewhere here in Western Europe. When Granada fell, Isabel gave Jews in Castile the choice of expulsion or conversion to Christianity. In 1500, Isabel insisted, <coughs> insisted on conversion of all Granada's Muslims to Christianity as well. <coughs> so Latin Christianity, in an especially self-conscious version of its traditional form, became the symbol of identity for Iberia's kingdoms, and Protestantism would stand little chance of making any headway there against the project of building a monolithic Catholic or Christian culture. Indeed, it is possible to talk of an Iberian Reformation before the Reformation, well in advance of the general Protestant Reformation in Europe. Spain tackled many of the structural abuses clerical immorality, monastic self-indulgence, which elsewhere gave Protestant reformers much ammunition, ammunition against the old church. This reformation was promoted by the monarchy, which increasingly excluded any real possibility of interference in the church from the pope. Elsewhere in Europe, there were plenty who in due course transferred the identification on Martin Luther and the early protestant reformers. For over 3 decades from the 1490s much of Europe was in high excitement about its future. Two particular forms of abuse in the medieval church were identified by those concerned with reforming the church. Number 1, simony. Clergy took oaths of allegiance to the feudal lords on whose land the churches sat, thereby making them vassals of secular rulers. These feudal lords exercised power to appoint bishops and priests, who in turn were expected to pay for their appointments. This abuse reached as high as the papal office itself, which had become a prize over which competitors vied. The corruptive effects of wealth and power in Rome were obvious to many. Number two.
1: Nicolaitism.
0: Clerk, clerics seeking to secure an inheritance from church-controlled lands for their children would sometimes marry or more often cohabit with concubines. Number three, priests and bishops were to be married to their churches. Simony made them prostitutes. Nicot- Nicolaitism. Nicolatism made them adulterers.
1: So... We have the church rising to a zenith of power and influence, but we also have a lot of people down below that are wanting the church to change. One of them was Grute.
0: There were many individuals who were both important and influential humanists. Fan Francesco Petarca, 1304 to 1374, Colusio Salutati Salutati. 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 1330 to 1406, Lorenzo Valla, 1407 to 1457, Giannazzo Manetti, 1396 to 1459, Marsilio Ficino, 1433 to 1499, and Giovanni Pico, 1463 to 1494. We could spend an entire semester studying the contributions of each of these great men. In addition to the Italian humanists, one, the most important was the Dutch Gerard Groote, 1340-1384, to 1384, who placed the Renaissance on the path to religious reform. Groote lived and taught the common life, which is merely the study of the scriptures and the application of Jesus' teachings to everyday life.
1: Now, that's a very interesting title, The Common Life. Because it's what we do as Latter-day Saints, but that's what, that's what he trained his, his, his monks to do.
0: He lived what he preached, never becoming wealthy, treating sinner and saint with dignity, and overcoming natural or worldly tendencies. He taught the gospel of work, kindness, forgiveness, forbearance, and love, taking people into his home that needed help, rehabilitating them if need be. He and his followers established the brethren of the common life, and later authorities called Grute the Great, the apostle of his country, saintly, devoted, and learned, humble, and meekly obedient to all lawful authority, the true reformer, the model for all missionaries, the architect of one of the grandest schemes ever devised for calling back erring men to the fold of Christ the Italian humanist and Dutch reform movements have the same philosophy. Both both place great emphasis on useful learning on the value and practicality of their knowledge. Their criticism of the medieval scholastics was due to the impracticality of their philosophy. Therefore, wrote Petrarch, they are far wrong who consume their time in learning to know virtue instead of acquiring it and those whose time is spent in learning to know God instead of loving Him.
1: Writer once.
0: He similarly observed, Much study is of little profit unless it is directed to the amending of one's life and to the ordering oneself diligently in right conduct. Christian humanists believed in an orderly reformation from within the Church using the Sermon on the Mount as a guide hoping that a return to the scriptures would result in a renewal of Christian morals and correct the ineffectiveness of scholastics. In addition to those in Italy and Holland, there were influential Christian humanists throughout Europe. In France, Le Le et Etaples, 1450-1536, and Giuliani Boudet, 1467-1540. to 1540. In Spain, Juan Luis Vives, 1492 to 1540. In Germany, Rudolf Agricola, 1444 to 1485, and Johann Ruckland 1455 to 1522. And in England, John Collette, 1466 to 1590, and Thomas More, 1478 to 1535. These men were all brilliant scholars, Prolific authors and their ideas had a huge impact.
1: It's difficult not to see Heavenly Father sending them to the earth at the same time because of the great work that they did. Um, they never got to join the true church in this life, but it's my hope that their works will done for them and that they join in the next. These were tremendous men.
0: The central event of the 16th century was the breakup of the monolithic Western Church through the Reformation. The Reformation was neither a single act nor led by a single person. The 16th century brought William Tyndale,
1: Desiderius Erasmus,
0: Martin Luther, John Calvin, Ulrich Zwingli, Mino Simmons, Henry VIII, John Knox, and others to the drama of Christian history. The Christian humanist whose voice had the greatest impact was Erasmus from Holland. He studied with the Dutch Brethren of the Common Life, then in England at Cambridge, then in Paris, and then in Italy, where he received a doctorate in divinity. He was fluent in all European languages, but was most proficient in Latin and Greek, the languages of the New Testament.
1: It's hard to figure out where all this guy's brains fit, but he was easily the most intelligent of all the reformers.
0: He felt called upon to use his learning in a purification of the doctrine by returning to the historic documents and original languages of sacred scripture. Erasmus Greek and Latin translations of the scriptures became the standard Christian works as well as the source material for Luther's translation in German and Tyndale's translation in English.
1: Yeah, he had a huge impact.
0: Although his work contributed to the German and English Reformations, he worked vigorously his entire life to maintain his neutral and peaceful Catholic position. He was in favor of church reform from within and was adamantly opposed to the violence resulting from the Reformation. Because of his neutral stance, Erasmus was despised by extremists on both sides of the debate. While empathetic to some of Luther's calls for reform, he debated with him regarding the changing of doctrine and the abolishment of the Church. His main doctrinal difference with the Protestant Reformation was his belief in free will versus the Protestant's belief in predestination. In a spirit of retaliation, Luther called him a liar, a viper, and the very mouth of the organ of Satan. Uh, One important matter to interest radicals was that Desiderius Erasmus did not share in Western theologians general stampede to praise Augustine of Hippo. He had too much respect for creativity and dignity in human beings to accept Augustine's premise that the human mind had been utterly corrupted in the fall of Adam and Eve. So Augustinian pessimism was not for Erasmus.
1: No, it was not.
0: His teachings and writings epitomize those of the Christian humanists. Erasmus spoke out strongly for living true Christ-like lives rather than simply observing the symbols of such lives. What does it matter that your body has been washed as long as your mind stays filthy? What point is there in your being showered with holy water if you do not wipe away the inward pollution from your heart. You venerate the saints and delight in touching their relics, but you despise the best one they left behind, the example of a holy life.
1: Pretty good guy, huh?
0: After his death, he was some rejected by both the reformers and Catholic insiders, but his work and influence have lived on, and at one time, His writings consisted of 20% of all literature bought or sold in Europe. There were many forces that eventually left people dissatisfied with internal reform and led them towards what became known as the Protestant Reformation. The spirit of inquiry and critical investigation, which were central to the Renaissance, fostered intellectual freedom. Meanwhile, the intervention of printing by movable type caused a multiplication of books and more rapid circulation of ideas.
1: That's a good place to stop today because we have so much more to cover. But I hope you can see the great place that Erasmus played in the Reformation and also in helping turn Christianity the right direction. It's my faith and testimony that when the Lord sent the right people at the right time to do the right things, and Erasmus was one of them, and I say it in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Thank
0: you again for joining us today with another segment with Dr. Ron Bartholomew with his insightful review of Christians and the Gospel. This podcast is presented through the facilities of Golden Gems Radio. We invite you to join us on the internet at www.goldengems.net, where you will find presented each week a review of the music and career of one of the great musical artists from the forties, fifties, and sixties. When music was music, in the golden days of radio. Please join us again next week with another episode on the Christians and the Gospel with Dr. Ron Bartholomew.